The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Now, I know I probably shared this story one time before, but way back in 1989, I was a freshman in high school in this little school in western Montana, Victor High School. There's like 65 kids in my high school. We played eight-man football, and I loved football. And it was two days my freshman year, and I was a very prepubescent freshman, five foot nothing, a hundred nothing, with a squeaky voice. Like I was a very little freshman. And I was nervous and scared and, and humbled by the big upperclassmen. And we were heading out to practice one morning. I got there a little bit late. And so I had my pads, my helmet, my stuff in my hand, and I had my football cleats in my right hand. And as I'm heading out the locker room, the light switch is on. I'm going to try to turn the lights off uh, in the locker room, but all I have in my hand is my cleats. The bottom of the cleats are black. And so I thought, well, I'll just turn off the light with my cleats. And I took one swipe and missed, two swipes and missed. About 10 or 12 swipes later, I finally catch the light switch. I go outside. I do practice. I come back in after practice. I noticed that all over the wall are black streaks from my, my cleats. I thought, ooh, okay. So I come back for our two-a-days, our evening practice, and our coach is livid. And so he sits all of us down, and he is mad. He says, who is the idiot who tried to turn off the lights with his football cleats? And I'm like, yeah, who is the idiot who (laughs) tried to? I was so nervous. Like, I didn't. And he kept saying, if you don't come forward, the whole team's going to run. And at this point, it's just too late because I didn't come forward initially. So I just like, I took zero responsibility for my actions, and my whole team had to run. We all got punished for my, and I, still to this day, they don't know that that was me. (laughs) I share that story because as we get into Daniel chapter 9 today, we see the exact opposite from Daniel. I failed to take any ownership, any responsibility at all. We see the opposite from Daniel. As we open up to Daniel chapter 9 today, we're going to see that Daniel is getting an image of his people suffering. They're in exile, and they're in dispersion at the time that he's writing this. And he knows that his people have long lived in rebellion against God. He knows that his people are suffering under the discipline of God. That's why they're in dispersion. That's why they're in exile. And we see him taking ownership for his people as he steps up before the Lord and begins to pray on their behalf. He's a prophet. And in humility and contrition, he begins to call out to God in confession and in pleas for mercy. He recognizes that the pain that he and his people are suffering are, are, it's coming though at the hands of corrupt uh, invading kingdoms, but ultimately it's, it's God's hand of judgment against his people for their ongoing disobedience. And, and so as Daniel comes before the Lord, all he can do is appeal to God's character and he can rely on God's promises. We see him come to God in confession and contrition. Now we don't use that word contrition a ton, but, but it means feeling sorrowful or remorseful for improper or objectionable behavior. And the Bible talks about having a contrite heart before the Lord. A contrite heart is one in which the natural pride and self-sufficiency have been completely humbled by the consciousness of guilt. And as he appeals to this God of his, this promise-making, promise-keeping God, he prays also with expectation because he knows that God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping in God. And so here, if I was to share with you the summary of what I think ultimately is happening in our text today, it's simply this. This is the argument. Come to God in confession contrition, and with great expectation. I think that's what we're seeing today in these 19 verses, this invitation. We see it modeled by Daniel for them then, but as we apply it to us today, we see the same invitation for us. Come to God in confession, contrition, and with great expectation. Now think with me, if you will. Those of you that are students of the Bible, you know the story well, but maybe for some of you, you're not real familiar with how the story of the Bible unfolds. Let me walk you through very quickly the history of the people of God. Do you remember the story of the Exodus? That under the leadership of Moses, God with his mighty hand led his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. Now they wandered around for 40 years, but they ultimately made it to the promised land. And on the way to the promised land, the people of God stopped by Mount Sinai where God entered to a very special relationship with his people. A covenant relationship with the, with the people of Israel. And, and part of that covenant, God gave a set of commands to his people for them to obey. And in essence, what God said to them is, is you, can, you can count on experiencing great blessing as a people. You can count on experiencing great enjoyment of relationship with God as long as you walk in obedience with my law. God said that with obedience to the law comes great joy. But if you know the story, you remember that the people of Israel did not obey God. They, they repeatedly struggled with disobedience. And even after getting into the promised land, they still didn't obey the, the sin was persistent and ongoing. 
And so what did God do? Well, he sent them men, men called prophets, to remind his people of the relationship, the special relationship that existed between God and them. He reminded them of his commands. He urged his people to follow him. Uh, He warned them through the prophets what would happen if they persisted in their disobedience. But the people didn't obey. And so what did God do? Well, he modeled patience and he sent more prophets. Over and over again, God in his patience sent prophets to his people, calling them back to himself. And as time went on, the prophets spoke more and more warning and judgment. And eventually there came a time when God sent judgment because of this ongoing and pervasive disobedience. And judgment came in the form of a conquering nation. Over the course of 21 years or so, from 605 B.C. to to 586 B.C., the Babylonians sieged Judah and Jerusalem. And the Babylonians were simply God's agent to exercise his judgment. They were a people who didn't care anything about God. But God used this nation to inflict judgment on his people, an act of discipline against his own people. And so what did they do? Well, they captured the people of Jerusalem. Many went into dispersion around the Mediterranean world, but but a select few, Daniel included, were brought into exile. The smartest, the brightest, the best were brought into exile into Babylon. And that's where we meet Daniel as the book of Daniel opens up. We meet him in his exile to Babylon. Now, it wasn't God's intention to keep his people forever in dispersion or in judgment or in exile. He had an intention to bring his people back. He didn't forget about his people. In fact, in fact, God had promised through one of these prophets I spoke of a few moments ago, Prophet Jeremiah, that the captivity would only last 70 years or so. And after 70 years passed, the prophet Jeremiah let the people of God know that, that, that God would bring his people back to their land, into the holy city of Jerusalem. Now, God promised that once they got back there, the city would be rebuilt, the temple would be rebuilt. And so by the time we get to our text today, Daniel 9, this is the backstory. Daniel's been in captivity for like 65 years. He's like an 80-year-old guy. He's lived the, the, his entire adult life as a, from a teenager all the way to being in his 80s, serving pagan kings and living in a pagan kingdom in exile far from home. And somehow, some way, the, the Babylonian Empire has been overthrown, and he's in the first year of the new Medo-Persian Empire under King Darius. And somehow, someway, Daniel has a copy of the prophecy of Jeremiah. And we open up in chapter 9 with Daniel actually reading Scripture. He's reading the, the same prophet Jeremiah you and I have in our Old Testament. is the same Jeremiah that Daniel is reading as our book opens up. And as he's reading, he sees some things. He sees that through the words of the prophet Jeremiah that the, the exile is only in the last 70 years. And so Daniel starts adding it up. He's been in captivity for some 65 years. He realizes their time in exile is almost over. And it leads him to pray. This is where our text picks up. Daniel chapter 9. Let's begin in verse 1. We're not going to read through the whole passage in one shot. We're going to read through it in bits and pieces. So when I'm done, just keep your Bible open or put a a bookmark in your Bible so we can kind of continue to reference back as we journey through. Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descendant Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So he's saying, In the first year of King Darius, I'm reading scripture, and I come to realize that we're going to be in captivity for 70 years. And we're on the very end of that 70 years. That's what Daniel sees. We also got to just notice a couple key things about these first two verses. There's time markers here and historical markers here. He's mentioning an earthly king, and he's mentioning a location, and he's mentioning all this. And he's writing during the first year of this king. Now, if you remember as we taught through the first uh, six chapters of Daniel, it was narrative. And it ended in chapter 6 with Darius as king. So chapter 6 of Daniel is this very famous chapter of Daniel. It's when he's praying, and he won't, he won't cease praying, even though there's an edict that says he should pray to, to the king. And so he ends up going to the lion's den. God stops the mouths of the lions, and Darius gives praise to Daniel's God for the miraculous salvation that he experienced in the lion's den. Well, as that was unfolding, that's also the same time that Daniel is receiving, same period of time where Daniel is receiving these visions. And some in my small group were even saying on, on Thursday, could this be... Could the prayer that we are seeing Daniel pray here in Daniel 9 be the very prayer that he was praying that got him in trouble in Daniel 6? We don't know. Could be. Kind of an interesting thing to think about. 
And so we see this, this historical marker. And also, we just also got to say real quickly, from, for you history buffs, King Cyrus is a very well-known Medo-Persian king. And, and, and Darius, there's some confusion as to who is Darius and what's Darius' relationship with Cyrus. And scholars don't really agree. We have lots of support and, and historical support to, to, to help us understand and know that, that Cyrus was a king. We know he was a king. There's lots of extra biblical resources that reveal the fact that he was a king. We struggle to find some of that information, those historical uh, confirmation of Darius. And so what some people have said is, well, Darius, we just haven't found the records yet. A lot of other people say Darius and Cyrus were the same person. There's, in fact, supposedly there was a, a practice in the, in the, uh, when it came to the ascent of kings that in the first year of their reign, they were given a special name in the first year of their reign. Ultimately, we don't know. Um, but that's just, there's a disagreement with scholars on what to think about Cyrus and, and Darius. But we know that there is a king here. And it was also about the same time Daniel receives this, this prayer that he's reading the scripture that, that, that Cyrus issued a decree that would actually send the people of God back to Israel. So we see the, we see the historical markers. These are things that happened. We also see a timestamp. We know that since this was the, the first year of this reign, it was around 539 B.C., and I, as I was reading that this week, as I was thinking about, I think sometimes the temptation when we read Scripture is just to think about it as uh, literature and forget that it's, it's rooted in dateable history. And as we look at what's happening here, there's, it's rooted in time, there's historical markers, and, and what do we see Daniel doing? We see him reading Scripture. Look at verse 2. According to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. And so Daniel tells us that his prayer is prompted by or in response to the prophet Jeremiah. Look at verse 3. I turn my face then to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer. In reading the word of God, God stirs something up in Daniel, and it compels him to begin praying to the God of the word. And this is the title of my sermon today, simply taken from that little line in verse 3, seeking God by prayer. Daniel was a man of prayer. We know that. We learned that about Daniel in the first half of the book. He prayed when he needed guidance. He prayed when he wanted to give thanks. He set aside three times a day to pray. And so for the, the days, weeks, months, years, and decades that Daniel was in exile, he was a man of prayer. He prayed. One author says it should not surprise us then to find Daniel in prayer here in chapter 9. And as we will see, this prayer comes from a personal and private attention Daniel gave to reading God's word. Okay, pick up verse 3. Here we go. Then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Pause there. Notice how he addresses God. He is the great and awesome God. And what does this great and awesome God do? Well, we read in the second part of verse 4 there. He keeps covenant. He's a promise maker and a promise keeper. And steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And also in this passage here in verse, verse 4, we see LORD all in caps in your Bible. Because that's, this is the covenant name of God. This is a reference to the, to the name of God, Yahweh. And we see, in fact, Yahweh eight times in our passage. Well, seven times in our passage and one more time in verse 20. And this is the proper name of God. This is the only place in Daniel's book where he actually uses the proper name of God. He uses Yahweh. And this word goes all the way back to when, when, when Moses encountered God through the burning bush. The, when God used the, it's the word for I am. When, when God commanded Moses to go back to Egypt and, and, and lead his people out, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is where the name of God comes from. And so as Daniel invokes this name of God, it seems pretty clear that he's invoking the, or he's appealing to the covenant-making, covenant-keeping nature of God. This is the covenant name of God. This is the name Yahweh. And, and it reminds us, okay, and as Daniel is, is, is compelled to begin praying on behalf of his people, and as he addresses God by his covenant name, he's appealing to this aspect of the character of God. He is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. And as you look at all of Scripture, we see this, this, this theme weaved all throughout Scripture that God makes promises and God fulfills promises. He establishes covenant and then he upholds covenant. That's what God does. Think back to Genesis chapter 3. 
as Adam and Eve are, are standing in the, in, the, in the shame of their sin, and as God is speaking a curse over Satan, in verse 15 of chapter 3, and God says to Satan that the seed of Eve will crush his head, makes a promise that, that, that Satan will be done with one day. And then you go to Genesis 12, and you've got, you've got God establishing a covenant relationship with Abraham, and he says that through Abraham all the nations of the world will be blessed. And then you see God establishing covenant with his people as they, as they, they meet at Mount Sinai and God, God allows his people this great miraculous exodus from Egyptian captivity. And you skip all the way up to 2 Samuel 7 as God makes covenant with David and establishes this throne forever. One greater than David will sit on the throne forever. And then you have language in the, in the major prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah about this, this new covenant that God will make where he'll take our, our stony, stubborn heart and he'll replace it with a tender, responsive heart. And, and God will write his law on our heart. And you get into the New Testament and all of a sudden Jesus shows up and Jesus begins to preach that the kingdom of God has come. You get to the end of Matthew 28 and Jesus talks about, hey, all authority on heaven and earth have been given to me. Therefore make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe the things that I have commanded and be sure of this, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. We get into Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul begins to expand on what this means this great promise of the gospel where Paul preaches that righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And there's no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and yet all are justly are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes through Christ Jesus. And then as you get to the last book of the Bible, the last two chapters of the last book of the Bible, we see the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the new heavens and the new earth with God's people gathered around the throne of God. God is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. He is a great and awesome God. And as Daniel begins his prayer before God, he doesn't run in with his requests. He doesn't walk in uh, casually in reverence and in worship with the, correct, with the correct posture between him and God. He acknowledges this great and awesome God. So he's appropriately lifting God up. He's acknowledging the bigness of God and the greatness of God and the awesomeness of God and the faithfulness of God and the otherness of God. And you see what happens when, that, when you do that? You and I can really be in, enticed into thinking we're a bigger deal than we really are. It's really easy, and we've used a million metaphors for that. You stand next to Mount Shasta and suddenly you don't feel so big anymore. And as Daniel begins to address God by extolling the attributes of God that make him great and awesome— the, the, the necessary byproduct of that is, oh, I realize how small I really am. And this posture between us and God begins to take place. So, he is appropriately lifting God up to start the prayer. And that's the first thing I want you to write down. We see in this seeking God by prayer, acknowledge he is great and awesome. He, he began this prayer through the reading of Scripture. Now, Jeremiah was this prophet of God, as we talked about a few moments ago. And actually, like, his lifespan and David's, or Daniel's lifespan overlapped. It wasn't like he was this ancient, ancient figure. Daniel reads his Bible. And as he reads his Bible, he recognizes that God has made some very specific promises to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah. And so, so Daniel comes to remember or, or realize that this exile is going to be 70 years so, so, which means as we look at the prophet Jeremiah's work, we, we've added chapters and verses. We, there are two places in Jeremiah where this takes place. Chapter 25 mentions the 70 years and, and chapter 29. In chapter 25, there's this prophecy about the end of the Babylonian Empire that's given. And in that prophecy, uh, it's mentioned that, that the kings will serve Babylon for 70 years, but after 70 years are completed, God says he's going to punish the king of Babylon and that nation. Well, the year prior to Daniel praying this prayer, the Babylonian Empire was overthrown, so that prophecy has been fulfilled. Very likely, Daniel was reading Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14. I know last week Sam preached on this text as he, as he was preaching, and I was over at Philippi. But just listen for a second to these five verses that exist within Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. 
And as I think about Daniel praying, I can't help but think he was informed by these next few verses. And here's what God says. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And so Daniel is reading these words and he he responds through prayer. And as he's reading the the prophet Jeremiah, and as as we read it now, we, we hear the unique voice of God here. We, we see God promising to put an end to the Babylonian exile by destroying Babylon. We see God promising to fulfill his promise to bring his people back. We see him promising to carry his plan out for his people to ensure that their future was one of welfare and, and hope. God promises to hear the pleas of his people. He doesn't turn a deaf ear. He, he promises to make himself findable to his people, to restore the fortunes of his people, and to gather his people. And it's no small thing to me that it, it, it was, mo- Daniel's prayer was, was, was preempted, or Daniel's prayer was, was, was before he, he began to lift up his prayer, he was, he was reading the scripture, and that's what drove him to the knees, to his knees. And I think about the role of scripture in prayer today. We, 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 we often, we, we refer to the, the scriptures as the Bible, the Holy Bible, the Old New Testament, but one of, the, one of the popular ways we as Christians refer to the Bible is we call it God's Word. Because we believe that this book was inspired by the Holy Spirit, God himself, and that these are, in fact, the living words of God that God has preserved for us. So we treat the Bible very, very highly. And so we believe that when we read this book, we're not just reading some ancient book. We're actually hearing the very voice of God. We're encountering God in unique ways through his word that's been inspired. And I was thinking about what Peter says. Now, the, the, Peter was a, an apostle of Jesus, right? And he saw Jesus do and say amazing things. He saw the, the, him walk on water. He saw him raise the dead. He saw him heal the sick. He saw him preach to thousands and saw him produce loaves and fishes miraculously to feed the masses. And he saw Jesus transfigured on top of a mountain. He saw the glory of Christ on Transfiguration Mountain. And in 2 Peter, he's sort of speaking about this, but I want you to hear it, what he has to say here. In 2 Peter Chapter 1, verses 16 through 19. And he's telling his audience, We we do not follow cleverly devised myths. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He's referring to, to seeing Christ transfigured on top of Transfiguration Mountain, verse 18. He says, we ourselves, Peter says this, we ourselves heard the a very voice of God born from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So, so Peter's saying, listen, I, I was an apostle of Jesus. I saw him transfigured into glory on the top of the mountain, and I heard the voice of God audibly thunder down from heaven, which said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But then here's what he says in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. That blows my mind. And I know I've said this before, but how many times in your life, in your pursuit of God, your pursuit of truth, have you said, God, if you would just speak to me, if you would just, if I could just hear your voice, if you would just make yourself known to me, drop golden tablets, whatever you got to do, God, if you would just speak to me, then I would listen, then I would obey, then I'd do whatever you asked me to do. And Peter says, yeah, he spoke to me. I heard the, the audible voice of God on top of the mountain. But you know what's more fully confirmed than that? The prophetic word. This is actually a truer word than the actual audible voice of God. And so I say that because as we see Daniel reading Scripture, it is through the reading of Scripture that he is driven to a place where he recognizes his need to pray and to come before God. Which means there is an encounter with the living God that is to be had through reading of his living word. Daniel is reading Scripture and was led to pray. But he's also grieving, isn't he? Daniel's grieving as well. We read that along with praying, Daniel fasted and clothed himself in sackcloth and ashes. And these are signs of intense mourning and repentance for for sin. 
In sackcloth and ashes were this, this, this custom used in the Old Testament times. It was a symbol of, as I read this week, debasement, mourning, or repentance. Someone wanting to show his or her repentant heart would often wear sackcloth and sit in ashes and put ashes on top of their head. And sackcloth was made of this coarse material of, of, of black goat's hair. It was uncomfortable to wear, and the, the ashes signified desolation and ruin. And we see Daniel donning sackcloth and ashes as he prays. He's mourning, he's grieving the disobedience of his people, the, the, the punishment of God that his people were facing. I read this week that sometimes sackcloth and ashes were used as a public sign of repentance and humility before God. So when we see God as he is, as Daniel is seeing God in the opening of this prayer, he's acknowledging his greatness and his awesomeness. There's this, this, this very much needed distinction. He is God and we are not. We're reminded of our smallness and our dependence on him. But how amazing that we can come to him. Come to God in confession and contrition and with great expectation. Let's look back at verse 5. As we read this first half of the prayer, I want to make note of two things. So before I read it, I want you to kind of have in your mind two things I want you to look for. One, make note of the purposeful contrast Daniel now makes in his prayer between the absolute holiness and righteousness and perfection of God and the utter godlessness and sinfulness of humankind, of the people of God. So we see this purposeful contrast in these next few verses. Second thing I want you to make, and make note of that as we read it. Second thing I want you to make note of is Daniel's use of plural language. I, I counted uh, at least 27 times in verse 5 through 15, he uses the words, us, we, or ours. So Daniel's not saying, praying on behalf of those people over there. Daniel's saying, we, us, our, we as a people, God, are coming before you in repentance. He's lumping himself in as one who needs prayer. So pay attention to those two things as we read these next seven verses or so. Beginning in verse 5. I pray to the Lord my God and make confession, saying, O Lord and great awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As to this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all of Israel, those who are near to those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. Our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him. And have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by working in his laws. Which he set before us by his servants the prophets. But all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us. Because we have sinned against him. Verse 12. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done and we have not obeyed his voice. And now our Lord, and now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day we have sinned and done wickedly. 
you see this purposeful back and forth of the, the righteousness and the holiness and the perfection of God and the treachery and the wickedness and the sinfulness of God's people. Daniel describes God as, as great and awesome, a covenant keeper, a steadfast lover, righteous, merciful, forgiving, a gracious lawgiver. He, he, is, he is a God who, who, who applies loving discipline. He, he cares enough to bring calamity as correction to his people. He's righteous in all his works. He's a mighty deliverer. And then he describes himself and his people as having sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, turned aside, not listened to the voice of God, committed treachery against God, sinned against God, rebelled against God. It goes on and on, not obeyed his voice, done wickedly. So the second thing we see, if you're going to write this down, in seeking God by prayer, we see confess wrongdoing before him. Confess wrongdoing before him. And why wouldn't we? Like, you think he's not aware? <laughs> you think he doesn't know? You think we can hide it from him? He knows. So it's kind of a silly game of cat and mouse if we try to keep our sins, whether corporate or individual, from him. At the same time that Daniel is confessing all the wrongdoing, he's also upholding the righteousness of God. And we see just the crazy ownership. I, this still blows me away. The crazy ownership of Daniel. He, he, he says in verse 6, We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of God. So he's taking ownership over the stubborn, stopped-up ears of the kings, the princes, and the fathers, the generations before him. And then he lumps the people that are around, and to all the people of the land. It kind of says a similar thing in verse 8. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. Why? It belong, open shame belongs to our kings and our princes and our fathers because we've sinned against you. And so we see this kind of like this. He's representing the whole of the people of Israel as he's coming in this prayer before God. He's acknowledging and confessing the sins of these kings and princes and fathers. And the irony is this, is that Daniel is suffering the consequence of their sin. It was the discipline of God to send his people into exile at the hands of the Babylonians. And here's Daniel, this, this young man who was, who was in captive, was led off into exile as a teenager. He spent his whole entire life under the punishment of God for the sins of his people. And yet we see him not pointing fingers and assigning blame to others. He's praying on behalf of his people. Their failure, the kings and the princes and the fathers, their failure to remain faithful to God has led to the, the loving discipline that Daniel himself is experiencing in this very moment. I can remember years ago when I was in seminary, I was taking a course on uh, transformational leadership. And I'll never forget, there was this, there was this, we were reading a, a Harvard Journal of Leadership or something, and it was a secular source, but there was this theory of leadership. There they, they said, the, they called it the window door principle, and they said all the greatest leaders observe the window door principle. And all the, all the, all the, the worst leaders also observe the window door principle, but in reverse. So the, the worst leaders, when something bad is happening in the organization, they look out the window and they assign blame, when something good is happening, they look in the mirror and take credit. But the best leaders, when something bad is happening in the organization, they look at the mirror and they take responsibility. But when something good is happening in the organization, they look out the window and they give credit where credit's due. I just look at Daniel here looking in the mirror and taking responsibility for the sins of the generational sins that came before him. Here he is, this old man, 65 years he's lived in exile. He's an 80-year-old man looking in the mirror and, and offering this prayer. He, he's, in, he's endured the heavy hand of God, the heavy hand of God's discipline since he was a child. He's been living far from home his whole life, serving pagan kings. He could look at the sins of those who came before him, the kings and the princes and the fathers, and he could point the finger of blame, but instead he humbly seeks after God by prayer on behalf of others, on behalf of himself. This last Wednesday, we gathered our high school kids, and, and we kind of had a week where we got to kind of look at some different things. And so we decided to look at the life uh, and the death of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I was looking at Daniel as this, this leader who was living under the oppression of, a, of pagan kingdoms, but trying to stand up for God. And I looked at Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I thought, well, there's kind of some similarities there. Let's look at the life of Bonhoeffer. For those who don't know, Bonhoeffer was a, a pastor theologian, author, in the 30s and 40s in Nazi Germany. 
And he, he very boldly, from the very beginning, spoke out against Nazism and spoke out against Adolf Hitler. It's very well documented. And as the Protestant churches in mass were increasingly embracing the, sort of the Nazi brand of nationalism, the sort of religionized version of their faith, as they were allowing their churches to take direction from Hitler, Bonhoeffer was, was offering stark warning to the church and to his fellow countrymen about, about how dangerous this was. And he ended up being thrown in jail, and he suffered greatly for it. And, and so bad, right before the war, World War II really broke out, so bad was everything that he ended up fleeing to America in, in I think it was June of, of 1939. He had a sister, I think, that was living in America, and he fled to America to kind of just wait it out wait Hitler out. But as soon as he got to America, he had great regret. He felt like he had abandoned his people. He was in America for maybe two or three weeks, and then he hopped on the very last transatlantic ship to go back to Europe before the war blew up in, in Europe. And he was quoted as saying this. Here, why did he go back to Germany when he knew it was going to be awful? Here's what he said. I have made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through the difficult period in our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share in the trials of my people. I love that quote. As I look at Daniel, coming before God on behalf of his people, he's sharing in the trials of his people. And I'm reminded of what this text is really saying. Come to God in confession, contrition, and with great expectation. We seek God in prayer by acknowledging his great and awesome name, and by confessing wrongdoing before him. Now look with me, if you will, at the last few verses, 16 through 19. Again, we see Daniel using this plural language. I think he uses the word our like, like, like five or six times in this passage. But make, make note of the way in these last few verses, as Daniel's kind of wrapping up his prayer, make note of the way that he connects his requests to the name and for the sake of God and his reputation. Beginning in verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate. Verse 18. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our own righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Clearly, there's a lot going on, but one thing I can't miss is we see multiple times, beginning in verse 17, for your own sake, O Lord. In verse 18, the city that is called by your name. In verse 19, for your own sake. Your city, your people are called by your name. As we talked about this last week in our, in our men's group, part of us thought, is Daniel trying to manipulate God here, saying, hey man, if you don't make it better for us, your name is going to be defamed. I don't think he's trying to manipulate God at all. I think Daniel here is showing his heart that he is ultimately concerned with the glory of God, the reputation of God. He is saying to God, in restoring us, God, as a people, in showing us mercy, in rebuilding Jerusalem, and in rebuilding the temple, your name is magnified and you are glorified. So God, I'm concerned with you being magnified in and through the restorative work you do in and through us. And Daniel is concerning himself. He is seeking by prayer. He's, he's making a plea for the mercy that only God can offer. He, he is praying, he is pleading for mercy from God for God's namesake. Now mercy is the gift of God's undeserved kindness and compassion. I've heard that that mercy is often described as God compassionately withholding just punishment. And so Daniel here is appealing to the merciful heart of God, knowing that when God does show his mercy, that God is glorified in the showing of his mercy. And so he asks God in multiple different ways, God, please turn your anger and wrath away from Jerusalem. 
God, please incline your ear to my prayer. God, listen to my pleas for mercy. Make your face shine upon your holy sanctuary. He's saying, God, open your eyes and see the desolations of your city and your people. God, please hear us, God. Please forgive. Please pay attention. Please act. Please, Lord, do not delay. He's begging for God to intervene. And on one hand, he is honest about the wrongdoings of his people. He's not candy-coated their sinfulness, their treachery, their godlessness, but at the same time, he's recognizing the merciful nature of God. He is upholding God, his merciful, righteous, gracious, faithful character, and he's saying this is the only hope that we have as a sinful, treacherous people. He's saying, God, as bad as we have sinned, your mercy is greater than our sin. Your mercy is more. He's dependent on God's character and his own, now not his own character or that of his people. I love what, what he says here in the second part of verse 18. He says, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness. They don't have any righteousness, but because of your great mercy. We don't have any basis, God, for, for coming to you with our requests. Like, we, we're, 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 we're deeply sinful people. But God, you're a merciful God, and we come to you based on your character and your mercy and your righteousness. Like the people in Daniel's day, we too need the mercy of God, don't we? We too need God to turn his anger and wrath away from our sin. We too need God to listen to our prayers and hear our pleas for mercy. We too beg of God to make his face shine upon us, to incline his ear to our prayers, to open his eyes and see the desolations of our lives. We too need God to hear and to forgive and to pay attention and to act. And so with Daniel, we too pray, please, Lord, do not delay. And yet, because of where we now rest this morning in salvation history, we know something of the mercy of God that Daniel didn't know. We have a perspective on the mercy of God that Daniel himself did not have. Daniel looked forward to the merciful work of God, knowing the merciful character of God as revealed through the word of God. But we look back at the merciful work of God as revealed to us in and through his son, Jesus Christ. The cross is a picture of the mercy of God. It was on the cross that God displayed perfectly his merciful love toward us. This is the gospel. That seed of Eve that was to crush the head of the serpent, that promise that God made all the way back in Genesis 3 was fulfilled in Jesus when he defeated sin and death. That one through whom all the nations would one day be blessed, that covenant promise God made with Abraham, let that blessing of all peoples comes through Jesus. He is the king of kings that sits on David's throne forever. And he entered human history. He came near to you and to me and to humankind. He donned flesh, fully God and fully man. And he chose to go to the, go to the cross. And although he never sinned, he chose to die a sinner's death in your place and in, my, and in mine. He lived a life of perfection that you and I could never live. And he died a sinner's death that you and I both deserve. And the cross is where the love of God and the justice of God collided. The result is God's mercy towards you and me, the salvation of our souls. He was punished so that you and I don't have to be. I'm reminded of the song, His Mercy is More, which, which says halfway through the song, what riches of kindness he has lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood beneath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, it's new every morning. Our sins, though they are many, His mercy is more. And as David Helen points out in his commentary, we need the mercy of God. And so to whom shall we turn? Who will represent us before God? As Daniel is sort of standing as a representative on behalf of the people of God before God, who do we look to to be our representative before God? Daniel represented his people. Who represents us? Well, we have Jesus representing us before the Father. It's very clear. It's Scripture. I want to just read. I couldn't say it as good as Helm says it. I'm just going to read to you what Helm says. As he's talking about the. In the gospel accounts of, of, of Jesus' life and, and ministry, we see him continually in prayer. And then Helm goes on to make this observation. 
Amazingly, Jesus still hasn't stopped interceding on behalf of God's people. Paul writes these comforting words in Romans 8, verse 34, quote, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised to life, who is now at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, end quote. Similarly, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he, is, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is speaking up for you and for me right now. As such, we do well not to only consider and confess our sinfulness and our absolute need for mercy from God, but also to closely follow the words of the one who ultimately intercedes for us in every way and to ground our confidence in his interceding for us and in the character of the one who he speaks to rather than anything we are or anything we do. I love that quote. It's an invitation for you and for me to come to God. Come to God in confession and contrition and with great expectation. He is a promise maker and a promise keeper. And as I, as I just step back and as I consider what's happening here in verses 1 through 19, as I look at Daniel's response to what God has revealed to him, I just can't, I just can't help but just place myself in his shoes. I mean, as a teenager, he was brought into captivity into a foreign land, taken captive, pulled away from everything that he knew. He's lived his entire adult life far from home as an exile. Not only has he spent all this time away, he's been a faithful witness to God, for God to these pagan kingdoms. And in the last two chapters, chapter 7 and 8, as we've studied over the last several weeks, he has received revelation of horrors that await the people of God. The, the, there's going to be these kingdoms that wage war against the people of God and prevail against them for a season. Daniel's seen these apocalyptic visions of the suffering of his people that await his people. And yet at the same time, he's reminded of God's promises being bigger than the, 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 the future threats and the sinfulness of his own people. And his response is to run to God in contrition and confession and to plead for mercy. I can tell you, as I put myself in Daniel's shoes... And as I think about God allowing me to, to, after a lifetime of being a captive or an exile in a foreign land, against my will, as I imagine being in Daniel's shoes, and then God providing revelation to allow me to see the, the, the atrocities that await the people of God at the hands of, corrupt, of, of future corrupt kingdoms, I, I don't think I would respond the way Daniel has responded here. I can imagine my prayer would probably be one like one of the imprecatory prayers we read in the Psalms. When I saw kingdoms that were going to oppress my people and me and my family, I probably would pray a prayer like, God, take them out. Grind their teeth into a powder. Destroy them. Somehow, through reading the prophet Jeremiah, recognizing that this exile is the discipline of God against his people, Daniel does not get bitter. He does not get vengeful. He's not amped up for a fight. He sees all of it, past, present, and future. He sees all of it as a prompt to confess and repent and get right with God. Oh my goodness. Oh God, would you just do a work in my heart and in the heart of this church that when we encounter suffering in our life, rather than raising a fist of anger towards you and frustration, that we would instead turn to you with contrition and confession and pleas for mercy, and recognize that the pain in our life is a, is a tool that you're using to, to mold us and shape us and form us into the people you want us to be. I mean, have you ever seen this kind of leadership before in any human leader? I'm not trying to extol Daniel. He's still a fallen human man, but this leadership example is incredible to me. Can you imagine people today at the highest places of power modeling this sort of humility? I mean, we see this often when there's been a scandal or someone has been disgraced and they, they're trotted out before the cameras and the news press conferences ashamed and they own their failures. But, but, but free from scandal, without impetus, can you imagine a head of state, a president, a prime minister, a king praying like this? A high-ranking politician or a famous and powerful religious leader saying before God and others and taking ownership, God, we as a people have sinned. 
We've done wrong. We've acted wickedly. We've rebelled. We've turned aside. We've not listened to you, God. Have mercy on us, God. We've committed treachery against you. We've sinned against you, God. We've rebelled against you. We've not obeyed your voice. We've turned aside. We've refused to obey. We've sinned against you, God. We've done wickedly. Can you imagine that kind of leadership, that kind of ownership, that corporate confession while God might work in and through something like that? And even on smaller levels, in my group on Thursday, we found ourselves talking about, uh, we are, it's a men's group, so we were talking about biblical headship. What if just we as dads and husbands took the sort of ownership over our homes? Where we took spiritual ownership over our families and we pleaded on behalf of God, not in anger, but in contrition and confession and in pleas for mercy. We took the lead in our homes and prayed for our wives and our kids and our grandkids. Begged God to intercede, appealing to his promise-keeping and promise-making nature. What if we just, for the sake of the most basic application, what if we just followed this as a model for our prayer as individuals today? What if you and me, before we gallivant into a prayer, sort of absent-mindedly, which I'm, it's fine to have conversational prayer with God. I'm not trying to be judgy here, but what if we pause for half a second and consider for just a half a second how awesome and great our God is? What if we pause to consider what it means that he is infinitely righteous, infinitely pure, infinitely holy? He is creator God. He's the Alpha, the Omega. What if we considered the bigness of God so that appropriately so we would recognize our smallness and we get off the throne of the heart of our life and we begin to appeal to God to, to work in and through us on his behalf and for his glory? Can you imagine? if we sought God by prayer, by acknowledging his great and awesomeness. And then in, in light of that, as we're made aware of how far we have fallen, how unholy we really are, how, how far down here we are, how high up here he is, if we just turned our face to the cross and recognized that through Jesus and through the mercy that is offered to us through Jesus, when God sees us, he doesn't see the sin anymore. He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ covering us, and so we don't act like worms and, 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 and heap shame upon ourselves, but instead we turn our face to God with confidence in what he's done for us through his son, and we, and we confess our sin, and we intimately pursue relationship with God. Plea for his mercy as revealed to us through his son. Yeah, I found myself thinking of this all week. So the argument is simply this. Church, come to God in confession and contrition and with great expectation. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, we are so grateful for this bit of text and for the, just the, the miraculous way, the, the beautiful way, the divine way you have preserved Daniel's prayer for us to, to, to see and to learn from and ultimately to encounter you in and through. God, I pray this morning that, God, you would hear, O Lord, that you would forgive Oh, Lord, that you would pay attention and act, God. We ask that you would delay not for your own sake. God, we ask that because of your church and your people who are called by your name, that you would move in and through our prayers and that you would be glorified. You are a merciful God. And this morning we acknowledge how big and beautiful and righteous and holy you are. And God, we ask that you would continue to renew us day by day through the mercy that you offer us in and through your son, Jesus. God, we love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.